Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and using a medley of film performances, documentary filmmaker, and cultural historian, and our guest today, Sarah Lookinson, traces how some of our favorite songs from the American Songbook came to be and how reimaginings by different artists, unexpected arrangements, and changing times transformed them into something more. As a matter of fact, we're listening to Smithsonian Folkways, the recording of Someone to Watch Over Me by Bill Floyd and the King of Organs from 1957. Sarah Lookinson will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates series via Zoom, and you're all invited January 20th, 2022. The title of Sarah Lookinson's Zoom presentation at Smithsonian Associates is More Stories from the American Songbook. Please check out our website, notold-better.com, or the Smithsonian Associates website for more information and ticket details, all of which will be in our show notes today. Sarah Lookinson has won three Emmys and seven Writers Guild Awards, and she teaches at NYU and the 92nd Street Y. Sarah Lookinson's personal essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Intima, a journal of narrative medicine. Songs of Love and Yearning, My Funny Valentine, Someone to Watch Over Me, all of these wonderful songs were written for Broadway musicals in 1926 and 1940, and these songs outlasted their shows and hundreds of versions later, from the simple to the soaring, the delicate to the sensual. They are the ones that turn our yearnings for love into the words and music we dream to. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series via internet phone, Emmy Award winner and Smithsonian Associate Sarah Lookinson. Oh, well, Sarah Lickinson, welcome to the program. We are so grateful for your time. Happy New Year to you and your family, of course. I just want to jump right into this. You're going to be talking about some of these wonderful songs from the American Songbook. And I wonder if just generally you'd give us a sense mm. as to what you might mm. be referring to when you talk about some of these songs. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, these are really hard questions to answer because, as I think I, I intimated in my note to you, choosing our favorites is so personal. I mean, one person can love this song and another person can say, oh, I hate that song. Why these songs are classic, you know, why is anything a classic? It's because there's some there's magic in, in art. There's magic in the alchemy of making these things. And why some songs work and some composers have the gift. You know, I just finished reading Putting It Together, which is the book that James Lapine wrote about doing the show uh, Sunday in the Park with George. And um, he makes a quick, uh, Sondheim makes a quick reference to Harold Arlen. And he says, he said, that one was sort of a Harold Arlen song. He said he was the most amazing uh, composer his, and the guy says to him, why? And he says, oh, his songs are seductive and warm and yearning. Okay, well, when Stephen Sondheim says a song is seductive, warm, and yearning, um, that's about all you need to say. I mean, <laughs> you know, why, why does someone to watch over me, why is, that, why is it so eternal? I mean, I, 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 I don't know why. Is it something about the melody? Is it something about, I don't know enough about music to say, is it the minor keys? Is it half notes? I don't even know what I'm talking about. 
why does the word song somewhere from uh, West Side Story just you just hear it and every time you hear it, you think it's the first time. Um, I guess the definition of any classic is that it's beautiful when it first came out and it stays beautiful as it gets reinterpreted decade after decade. And another thing that Sondheim said, uh, you know, there've been so many articles about him. So one of the things he said about the redoing company, which just reopened, he said, I think that works, that musicals, works of art, plays, musicals um, are living things. They're not museum pieces. And they should be made fresh and new for each audience and for each time. They're living things. And I think a classic is a living thing. Um, And one of the wonderful things that I've been able to find out for myself and explore in giving these classes is what new interpretations do to these songs. They, They almost make them brand new songs as though we've never heard them. And yet we know them. Uh, I suppose, you know, I don't have any kids, but I suppose when you look at your child and you see them at age 40, you still see see them as they were at 20 or as they were at two. It's the same person, but it's not the same person. So it's the song, but it's not the same song. And many of the songs that I teach uh, were minor hits when they first came out. And then somebody picked it up five or 10 years later and reimagined it, rearranged it. And you know, Paul, you're, 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 you're wise in the ways of music. An arranger almost makes a new song. I mean, what Nelson Riddle did with Frank Sinatra was practically to make a new song out of these things. So um, there's several songs that I have taught that were just sort of lying there when they came out. Uh, some of the songs I'll be teaching coming up, I think the first one, um, My Funny Valentine and someone to watch over me were sort of fine when they came out. But then Chet Baker picked up one of them and started singing them in this very seductive, sensual way. And suddenly uh, it became, My Funny Valentine became this huge hit in a way that it was never sung in the original. Um, A lot of these jazz people pick up songs that reinvent them and then suddenly hear them. Something that happened last time which was two of the songs that are the most played songs ever somewhere over the rainbow and you'll never walk alone, especially during the pandemic were played over and over. Remember in the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was recording them and putting them on zoom. And I love playing. You'll never walk alone from the clip when it first came out. Then when it, um, all the way through to when the Liverpool soccer stadium took it on and it became the anthem of the Liverpool soccer football team and almost of every soccer club all over the world. And, and a clip of these guys at a, at a, at a, at a soccer uh, audit, you know, arena singing it like they don't know it came from carousel. They think it's their song. And then during the pandemic, how many people were singing it? So one of the things I've loved is watching how these songs do transform into different times and different versions. I guess that's what makes them a classic is that they live on. And I, and I know you just love this subject and you love teaching this class. And really that's some of the, some of what it is that draws us all to this, right? That's what, one of the things that I have loved about teaching this class. And one of the things I really love about teaching, which is new for me, this is a whole new second uh, career for me. I don't want to call it a career, but it's a second new 
chapter for me. Um, uh, wh- one of the things that I love about it is I do get excited about things that I fall in love with. Songs, shows, uh, whatever I'm teaching, movies, I teach a lot of movies. I get very excited by the things I love when I, I love origin stories. I love origin stories. So I love to know how a song came to be or how a movie came to be or how a song in a musical or I love origin stories because there's a lot more chance and a lot more hair tearing out than we think. <laughs> so I like origin stories. And when I find out about them, I, I love sharing them. And then I love finding out that a song was sitting there for 20 years and nobody paid attention to it until you know, Chet Baker sang it or Nelson Riddle asked Frank Sinatra if he wanted to sing it. And Willie Nelson, for example, um, came into singing standards in the 80s with a with a album called Stardust. And um, that's by Hoagie Carmichael. And one of the songs he sang was called Blue Skies by Irving Berlin. You probably know that blue sky shining on me. And at the time, we were doing a uh, 100th birthday salute celebration to Irving Berlin at Carnegie Hall. And I was the writer and co-producer. And we had everybody who sang on that show. It was chock-a-block with talent. And Willie Nelson came and he sang Blue Skies. And nobody expected Willie Nelson to come out and just knock him dead with, with, blues, with an Irving Berlin song. And Ray Charles singing How Deep Is the Ocean? Of course, anything Ray Charles sings just tears your hair out. But here he was singing this rather simplistic, perfect song by Irving Berlin, How Deep is the Ocean? And you're weeping. Um, So a lot of these um, artists, they call them crossovers. I just call them singers. Um, They look for material where they can find it. And a lot of them fell in love with these standards. And I used a clip of Willie Nelson singing uh, Summertime last class that was utterly beautiful and I plan to use more Willie Willie Nelson in this class and you know who else is doing standards is Bob Dylan and uh, one of the songs that I'm going to be doing one of my very favorite songs in the world is Autumn Leaves because the original of Autumn Leaves as it was written in France by Jacques Prevert who is a poet and a screenwriter and a Hungarian uh, Joseph Cosmo I have to look up his pronunciation. They wrote this song in French. Yves Montas re- recorded it. It became his signature song. It's very melancholy. It's so melancholy. It tears your hair, uh, your heart out. But when Johnny Mercer rewrote the lyrics for an American version, they were wistful. They weren't melancholy. They were wistful. And everybody loves it, but it's a different song. And I can't wait to play everybody both versions. <laughs> just so they can see the differences. So there's a lot of um, life that these different performers put into the song and we hear them differently each time. So I get very excited about sharing them. And also we're really lucky that we can find these things on YouTube and audio clips now. So we're able to play them because we couldn't have done that, you know, 10 years ago. So tell us a little bit about what a songbook is and some of the great artists who have created them because they're really it's it's all over the map and there are just there are oh, sure. literally 10 sure. 20 30 uh, i suppose you know, different um, versions of different songs i do have her doing i i have a list of about 10 to 25 possibilities 
uh, for each song. And one of the things that's hard for me about this class is choosing which four versions of each song to play so that I show a wide variety of different versions because there's so many to choose from. And of course, there's always a Frank Sinatra and an Ella version because they did really, well, they did really create the songbooks. You know, Ella was the first one to sing, uh, uh, record songs in groups called that were called songbooks because they were one composer or one team at a time. And when they came out, they were nicknamed the songbooks because they were about one person and Sinatra was doing it at the same time. So you, you always go there to see what they were doing, but um, Lady Gaga certainly has done them. Linda Ronstadt did a lot of them, although uh, poor thing, she's not singing anymore. Amy Winehouse did an incredible version of someone to watch over me. Um, it was also in a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus, which is, you know, older, but um, Amy Winehouse did it. Um, Yes, I'd like to get a Lady Gaga version. I have her doing something. You have to give me a minute here. Um, You might want to put that on pause while I find out which of her songs. I also love Eva Cassidy. Um, Poor thing passed away at a very young age, but she used to sing at the Cellar cellar Door or the the Blue Note, I think the Blue Note in Washington. And her versions of some of these songs are... I mean, you've never heard them until she's sung them. The Muppets sing them. John Baptiste, you know, who is a wonderful, he's the um, pianist and band leader for Colbert, Stephen Colbert. He has a version of What a Wonderful World that is just, I love John Baptiste. He, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible artist. Um, but he has a version of It's a Wonderful World that made me kind of want to choose it. Um, so does Tom Jones. I, I think Tom Jones is great. <laughs> he does some great standards and he has a beautiful version of what a wonderful world, just beautiful. Now, Rod Stewart may be a little older than the group that you're talking about, but of course he's done so many of these songs too. So um, there's that. Um, I, Rod Stewart did make a new career out of it. He had, he's had I, at least three albums that, uh, you know, when he started, I think everyone was sort of poo-pooing him, but they did so well. He's had three of them. And Bob Dylan uh, did record these standards. He, Bob Dylan did a, a one, maybe two CDs of standards, which he sings. in um, now when he goes out to sing in his concerts and I looked up what he chose because I thought it'd be interesting to know what he loved. And um, I don't know that I'm going to play it, although people have mixed feelings about him, but he does a version of Autumn Leaves. And he said, you sing that and you have to know something about love and loss and feel it just as much, or there's no point in doing it. It's too deep a song. A schoolboy could never do that song convincingly. And he doesn't have a tuneful voice, but he has a soulful voice. And I learned a long time ago that it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the notes, note perfect. It's because a song, as Oscar Hammerstein used to say, is a three-act play. And when a song is written for Broadway, which so many of them were, I mean, Someone to Watch Over Me was written for Broadway. My Funny Valentine was written for Broadway. Um, 
Of course, Lawrence Hart is different. He didn't necessarily do three-act plays, but the good ones are three-act plays. And um, so you're looking for someone who acts, not just uh, carries the notes. Now, one of the songs we're going to do is Send in the Clowns, um, which, you know, is, is, is our beloved Sondheim. And it was written for um, the show A Little Night Music. And the story of him writing it is always interesting to hear that when you're writing for a Broadway show, you have to take the, you write in the language of the character, but you write in the singing uh, style and singing ability of the actor. So Send in the Clowns was being sung by Glynis Johns, who he said had a very silvery, lovely voice, but she couldn't hold a note. So he had to find short phrases because he couldn't ask her to hold a long note. And he said, when you're doing short phrases to me, said Sondheim, that leads naturally to asking questions. So the song became a series of questions, short questions. Um, but she could act. And uh, she made the song work because of the way she embodied the character and the language of the song, Send in the Clowns, is written in the language of the character who sings it. She's an actress. So when she says the line, um, what's the line about uh, knowing my lines? No one was there. It's an actress saying, I know my lines. And clowns is a theatrical phrase. When things are going badly or something, they send in the clowns to make people laugh or cover up a mistake. So he uses theatrical terms for an actress to sing a song. And the song just sat there for years afterwards until judy collins recorded it and as sondheim said unbelievably for reasons i don't understand said sondheim became a hit and then after she sang it sinatra sang it and when he used to sing it i don't know if it was a nelson riddle arrangement but when he used to sing it i think he started off by saying he didn't know what it meant but that it captured the sense of a love affair that wasn't going to be anymore which is what the song is about. And then the most beautiful, it's been sung, you know, by now by 500, 600 people, but the most beautiful version is by Judy Dench, who sang it at a, um, she sang, yeah, she sang it at a, um, it was a 80th birthday for Sondheim at the proms, the BBC proms in, in England. And, um, they had, it was an all, all Sondheim evening, and she was asked to sing Send in the Clowns. And when you hear it, which I will play in my class, you totally understand the song. Totally understand the song. She's probably the best version I've ever heard. And, and, I, and I will be playing it. So, um, and she's an actress. So she understands what the song is about. And sometimes that's, that's what makes a song. When you hear Yves Montand, who does have a lovely voice, but when you hear him embody the, the deep melancholy of loss, which is what Autumn Leaves is about, um, you feel you've been inside of a play. Um, so, you know, performing these songs isn't just about hitting the notes. It's about, under, it's about the character who's singing the song. And that's why we're always surprised sometimes by some of the best versions isn't necessarily people with the most uh, perfect voices, but it's people with uh, the soulfulness to understand the song. So um, that's been a big uh, lesson for me to see who can do that. So that's, uh, yeah. 
Good. Yeah. Sure. The silly questions are good. They're good. Silly questions are good. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but I believe the word cover just means somebody singing some, a, a song that already is existing rather than a, a new song or one that they wrote. So, yeah. So, yeah, taking it someplace else. It's a good way to say it. Uh, it's a very good way to say it. Mm-hmm. That's not a silly question. <laughs> it's all right. We're all out of our depth, but you see, that's why these, that's why these classes are so fun because we're all just a little bit out of our depth. We like it. We like these songs. It's a little bit out of our depth. And then I get to be a couple of steps ahead of the class um, and find things out and then go, Hey, come over here and listen to this one. And I've done that, you know, all my life with the films that I've made and the TV specials that I've written I get to find out a little bit before you do and then try to seduce you, as Sondheim said about Harold Arlen, seduce you into wanting to know, too. And for me, that's the fun part of teaching. And, um, you know, I just am a little ahead of you, but then hopefully seduce you into liking it as much as I do. Oh, yeah. No, these these songs are wonderful. And. It, what a what an honor it is to talk to you with your Emmy Awards, your Writers Guilds Awards, all of this work that you've done. Y- you've got two more. So we're, we're talking kind of about the January 20th presentation that's coming up. Mm-hmm. But then there's going to be a presentation by you on the 3rd of February and the 17th right. of February. Yeah. Right. So wait, let Do me get wanna... my list here. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. That, well, I, I've got my list here. So. My, the first class is Songs of Love and Yearning. My uh-huh. Funny Valentine is Someone to Watch Over to Me, which both happen to have been written for musicals, but they didn't really go very far in the musical, um, but they were picked up later by people that did very different versions of them. I mean, Someone to Watch Over Me was, was sung um, very, very fast. It was sung at a jazzy, fast tempo. It was only much later when uh, someone recorded it at a much slower tempo that the song began to go in a different direction. So the arrangements of these songs really do affect them. And My Funny Valentine, I don't want to give it away, but My Funny Valentine Mm -hmm. was written for a Broadway show in 1940. uh, It was sung by a woman to a guy that she loved, where she had a terrible crush on, whose name was Valentine. And they mm. called him Val. So his name was Valentine. And that's how the song was written. Mm. And of course, now we know it's, it's often sung by men to women. But in the show, it was, written by, it was sung by a woman to a man. So these things do change. As Sondheim said, they're living things. They, they're not museum pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those are both, um, I put them together because they're both about yearning for love. So they seem to go together mm-hmm. thematically. Um, it's not usually a word I like to use, but um, they both are about songs of love and yearning, and they both happen to come out of a Broadway show. And in the original, were very, very different than the version that we now have. And many, many songs from the Great American Songbook are songs about love. 
love, wanting, wanting love, yearning for love, not getting love, being in love, remembering past love, love not working. Love is a big subject in songs. Um, so it's written about in, you know, in all of its permutations, its joys and its losses and its sadnesses and its poignancy. And finding songs that weren't about love was sort of more of a challenge <laughs> because there's so many about love. <laughs> so those Second uh, class, February third. Did you want me to talk a little bit about that? Well, we yeah, we please. Did. And then the next one is the yeah. So the, yeah. the third um, is called "Songs to Remember Love." I, I I sort of wanted to call it "Memories of Love" because these are songs about people remembering a love that no longer is there, and there isn't anybody on the planet or listening to this show that doesn't have a love in their life that faded or was lost in time, or that they always think about, or they wonder what would have happened to it. And love lost, or love remembered, but never forgotten, to me, that's songs that are like the moonlight of remembering. They're songs that have a kind of moonlight quality to them, and they sort of belong to the private chamber of our own heart. And yet, these songwriters were able to put them down and actual words that sit on actual notes, even though the feelings in them feel very private and very um, personal. So that's the autumn leaves. As I said, in French, it's a, which is, was written in French. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of song. It's far more melancholy than the uh, translated lyrics by Johnny Mercer, which, as I said, are sort of more wistful. And Send in the Clowns, we talked a little bit about that already, what that Mm -hmm. is like. Mm -hmm. And that is about a love, of course, that two people had, didn't work, came together. Now it doesn't come together. The timing's wrong. We've all had that in our life, the right person, the wrong time. And now it seems just to be fading into the mist. Um, and I have a surprise that I'm going to end that song show with, which uh, is called This Nearly Was Mine, which is one of the greatest songs ever that come out of a musical about about a love that wasn't going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. And Brian Stokes Mitchell just just devours that song. I mean, you just barely left standing when he finishes singing it. Um, so that is the second class. And the third class, because we did have two songs about love, I thought I should look for songs that weren't about love, since the first two were, which were harder to find. And I <laughs> I found these two songs that, again, become very popular, um, even though when they were written, they weren't necessarily popular. And one of them is uh, What a Wonderful World, which we all know Louis Armstrong sings, but it's got a very uh, interesting past. It wasn't a hit when it came out in any way, shape, or form. It took uh, 20 or 30 years for people to come back to the song for reasons we'll talk about. But now we've got these wonderful versions of it by, as I said, John Batiste, Tom Jones, uh, Rod Stewart. Um, I've got lots of people singing them. So that's going to be a nice surprise, I think, for people. And then the song Smile, which um, people may not be as familiar with till they hear it. Um, but it was written by Charlie Chaplin um, for his silent film, Modern Times. Um, 
And uh, many, 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 many years later, two lyricists put words to it. And now that's the song that everybody sings. And we've got some wonderful, unexpected versions of, of Smile as well. Um, uh, let's see. Nat King Cole, of course, Judy Garland, Michael Bublé, Jimmy Durante. I've got Jul- Julian Ovidon, who is a big, uh, he was in, I think people might know him from Downton Abbey, but he actually is a singer. And he, um, Michael Jackson said he sings it all the time. We've got some interesting people <laughs> singing that song that you aren't going to expect. <laughs> um, but I'm also going to yeah. play a clip from Modern Times so you can see the silent version of it with Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> so yeah. I think uh, we'll have fun. Wonderful. That. Yeah. And then I've got a little surprise at the <laughs> and, end, which is that um, in my first class, uh, I asked people to tell me songs that they might be, that they were favorite songs that I could look into as possibilities. And a lot of people asked me um, to talk about Johnny Mathis. So I am going to have Johnny Mathis singing a song, but I'm not going to tell you which one. <laughs> Um, the only other thing I do want to say about my choices is we all have favorite songs and there's no right or wrong to them. They're just songs that speak to us. So we all have favorite songs. But the songs that I selected had to also have a good story and they also had to have a wide um, variety of interpretations so that when I played the variations, in the different interpretations, you really did feel that each time it was a different song. So it's not just finding a song we like, it's finding a song that I can, um, that has an interesting story and a wide variety. So it becomes interesting and more interesting as we listen to it. So, My thanks to Sarah Lookinson, who will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associate Series via Zoom. And you are all invited January 20th, 2022. The title of Sarah Lookinson's Zoom presentation at Smithsonian Associates is More Stories from the American Songbook. Please check out our website, notold-better.com or the Smithsonian Associates website for more information and ticket details, all of which is in our show notes today. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, be well this holiday series, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Interview Series. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) 